Like I said, we are in a series called After Easter. We're looking at the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. And so, uh, you know, after Jesus was raised from the dead, uh, before he ascended to the Father, he spent 40 days in the world appearing to people. So 40 days, that's almost six weeks, Jesus spent sort of lingering uh, on earth until he uh, went up to heaven. And he appeared to various people, sort of teaching them uh, uh, lessons uh, that, he, that he needed to teach them before he, uh, before he ascended. And this morning, uh, Jesus is going to appear to Simon Peter in John 21. This is the longest uh, resurrection appearance that we have. And uh, what I love about this uh, resurrection appearance is, is its a appearance revolving around Peter's failure. Failures. So today we're going to talk about failure. I'm going to begin with a question. How do you deal with failure? And if you're anything like me, uh, maybe the answer to that question is not so well. You know, we struggle with failure. Failures in marriage, failures in business, failures in parenting, uh, uh, moral failures. Uh, Many of us struggle uh, with all sorts of failures. And maybe you're here this morning, and as you're sitting in the seat, you are wrestling with a failure, a personal failure right now. Uh, recently, I was, I was listening to a TED Talk that was, uh, it was a video captured from uh, J.K. Rowling's uh, commencement address at Harvard University. And uh, I don't know if you know uh, J.K. Rowling, you know, she's the uh, author of the Harry Potter series. Uh, she is immensely uh, successful and um, you know, she's, well, she's become one of the best-selling authors uh, in all the world, like a few spots behind uh, William Shakespeare. And so she's giving this uh, commencement address at Harvard University. It's one of the most prestigious universities in the world. And she chooses as the topic of her address, failure. And she begins to be, become very vulnerable, and she starts talking about her own failure. And she recounts the story about how when she was, she was just graduated high school and, and she was a, a single parent, she was just out of a disastrous marriage. Uh, she had f- a few prospects, she was dirt poor. Like she hardly had anything. In fact, in her words, she says, I was as poor in modern Britain as one could possibly be without being homeless. So she's scraping by and she says, I was the biggest failure that I knew. J.K. Rowling said this. But then she says this, she says, you may never fail on the scale that I did, but some failure in life is inevitable. It is impossible to live life without failing at something, unless you live so cautiously that you might as well not have lived at all, in which case you fail by default, she says. So why do I talk about the benefits of failure? Simply because failure means the stripping away of the inessential. When I experienced failure, I stopped pretending to myself that I was anything other than what I was. Failure gave me an inner security that I, never, that I had never attained by passing examinations. Failure taught me things about myself that I could have learned no other way. So here's what she says. Failure in life is inevitable, but failure in life could be beneficial. Failure in life, is, it's going to happen, but she says you could, there is actually redemption, redemptive benefits to failure. Now, I know that's hard to believe, you know, especially if you're sitting in failure this morning. I mean, you're thinking, well, how could God ever redeem this, and how could I ever get out of this? You know, you feel like you're in some mail, uh, mail, a muck of failure that you can't get out. 
So how does this happen? How do we get out of failure? Well, you know, our culture doesn't really help us much with this. You know, outside of J.K. Rowling's address, our culture doesn't really talk about failure much. Why? Because we, we love success stories. You know, we are a culture of achievement. We're a culture of success. We are a culture that loves winners. And so if you look at the bestseller on the New York Times list, or you go to Barnes & Noble, and you look at all the books, uh, you're going to find books about how to, achieve, in, uh, uh, how to get, achieve success in business, or how to achieve success in marriage, or how to achieve success in finances, or how to succeed, uh, uh, achieve success in parenting. Where are the books about failure? We just don't talk about it much. And therefore, we aren't given the resources by our culture to know how to get through it, to know how to handle it. Listen, the Bible doesn't have this problem. Because the Bible is a book chock full of stories about failure. I mean, from beginning to end, the Bible is a book that over and over again recounts the stories from Abraham to David to the apostles of failure after failure after failure. And the Bible tells us how God can, that, that we are failures, but also how God can redeem us in our failures. And the story we're going to look at today in John 21 about Peter and this resurrection appearance is a story about how God, how Jesus redeems Peter's failure. And it's such a good story. Here you've got Peter, and, you know, Peter becomes a, you know, he, he, God uses him, you know, and he writes books of the New Testament, and he's the leader in the early church, but Peter, in our story this morning, is sitting in failure. I, I, he, he, he doesn't know how to move forward. And Jesus redeems him. Jesus helps him. We're going to see how Jesus does it. Hopefully it's going to help us as we sit in our despondency, maybe because of, because of the fact that we've messed up. And so I want to see three things this morning in the story. Number one, we're going to see the struggle that Peter has in his failure. And second of all, we're going to see the restoration of Peter's failure. And then finally, the transformation of his failure. So the struggle, the restoration, and the transformation of failure. Uh, three things, they're all here. Let's look at the first one. Uh, Peter's struggle with failure. We'll start in verse 1 here. Now after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples on the Sea of Tiberias. Now, John 21 uh, begins, it says, after this. And what's interesting is that John 20 seems like the end of his gospel. You know, if this was a movie, you know, all the credits would, would begin to roll at the end of John 20. John sort of wraps it up. Jesus appears to Thomas. He appears to all of his disciples. And then it says he did this so that everybody can believe. And it's almost like the story's over, but then John sees fit to add chapter 21. Why? It's because conspicuously absent in all the resurrection appearances is Peter. And Jesus still needs to deal with Peter and restore him. And so after this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. And then verse 2, Simon Peter... Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two other of his disciples were together. Okay, so it's after Jesus' resurrection, and there's Peter, and he's by the Sea of Tiberias, which is the Sea of Galilee, and he's with some other disciples, and most of them are named. You know, you've got, he's with uh, Thomas, the twin, it says. He's with uh, si uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. He's with Nathaniel. And then it says he's also with two of the other disciples. <laughs> I love that. He's with, it names all of them, and then it says, and then he's with two other disciples. Wouldn't it stink to be one of these other disciples? 
here, here, you know, here's your one chance to be in the Bible, you know, and, and here he names everybody, and then, and then the other two. It's almost like when you're in a picture on Facebook and everybody is tagged in the picture except for you. But here he is, he's with, uh, uh, you know, Thomas the twin, he gets, uh, you know, his, even his nickname is in there, and Zebedee gets where they're from, and he's with the other two disciples who are not named, and then it says in verse three, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Stop there. So Simon Peter announces to all of these, all of his buddies with him, I'm going fishing. Now this phrase, I'm going fishing, is a pregnant little statement. And there are, uh, you know, words and, and pages and commentaries written about this one little phrase, I'm going fishing. What did Peter mean by, I'm going fishing? Well, Peter doesn't just mean, hey, it's a nice day outside, let's go see if the fish are biting. You see, before Jesus called Peter, Peter, what was Peter? He was a fisherman. This is what he did for a living. This is what he did before he started following Jesus. And so when Peter says, I'm going fishing, it's present tense, what he's saying is, I'm going back to my old life. He's saying, I'm going to go back to being a fisherman. In other words, Peter is throwing up his hands, and he's saying, I quit. It's over. I'm going back. Now, why does, why does Peter do this? Why is Peter given up here? Well, it's not because Peter disbelieved in Jesus. It's not like he's saying, I don't believe in Jesus. This guy was a sham. I'm going back to my old life. No, Jesus appeared to Peter. Uh, G- Peter has seen the risen Lord. He's touched the prince in his, in his hands and the, and the hole in his side. It's not that Peter disbelieves in Jesus. It's not that he's mad at Jesus. I mean, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's achieved this great victory. And I'm sure uh, Jesus, or, or Peter is, um, he understands that Jesus has been, victor- uh, has been um, uh, not victimized, but victorious over the grave. It's not that he's let down in any way by Jesus. It's not that Jesus has let him down. What's going on here is not so much that Jesus let down Peter, it's that Peter has let down himself. You see, the last time we saw Peter in this gospel, he, he was at the lowest point of his life. He had, he had acted like a complete fool. And do you remember when that was? Uh, you remember before Jesus was crucified, uh, Peter with all of the other disciples, Jesus says, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be arrested. And what does Peter say? He says, though all the other disciples uh, you know, reject you, I will never deny you. And then just a few hours later, Peter is warming himself by a charcoal fire. And a middle school girl comes up to him and says, do you know Jesus? Jesus is is arrested. He's uh, He's being tortured. And the little girl says, do you know Jesus? And Peter, the one who said, I would never deny Jesus. I would never reject him. He says, I never knew him. And she says, are you sure you, you don't know him? And he says the second time, I never knew him. I don't know that man. And then she says a third time, do you know him? And and the third time, he denies the Lord with cursing and swearing. And the scripture says he went away and he wept bitterly. This is the last time we saw Peter. He had failed in a way that he never thought he would fail. And so here he is after the resurrection, and he says, I quit. What's going on? He's let himself down. He's disappointed himself. 
He never thought he would do this. He's failed in a way that he never thought he would fail. And, he, and just completely in despair, he says, I just can't do this. I'm giving up. Now, I wonder if you've been there this morning. You know, a lot of people quit church for a lot of reasons. You know, you may quit church because the church has disappointed you. Or you may quit church because, uh, you know, maybe a pastor disappointed you. But did you know that there's a lot of people that walk away? There's a lot of people that give up Christianity because they've disappointed themselves. And they feel guilty, and they thought they, they would do better than that. And because some colossal moral failure or marital fa- failure or something like that, they end up saying, I just can't do this. I give up. This is where Peter's at. He's struggling with his failure. He says, I'm going fishing. And maybe it was guilt that caused him to do this. You know, sometimes we, we fail and we're so overwhelmed with, with guilt that we just fall into despair. And we can't be around our friends anymore at church. We can't come and hear the Bible anymore because we feel so guilty. You know, the Bible says there's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. But then there's a morbid sorrow that leads you into despair and causes you to give, to give up. Maybe that's where Peter's at. Or maybe he's hopeless. Maybe he's thinking, I thought I could do this, but I just can't. You know, I, I, I thought I could walk with Jesus, but I can't. I'm not cut out for this thing, this Christianity thing. I'll never be able to do it. And so then he gives up and goes fishing. Or maybe it's fear. Maybe he thinks, you know, I could try again, but what if I fail again? And many of us, you know, failure threatens us at a very deep level, doesn't it? And so many of us, we just stop trying, we turn back, we walk away to a life of sin and complacency because we're just too afraid to try again. Peter says, I'm going fishing. Here's the problem with with Peter's struggle with failure. Notice he says, I'm going fishing, I'm giving up, and what happens? It says, all the other disciples say, we will go with you. You see, you know, so here's, here's Peter. He's a, he's a natural leader. Uh, you know, Peter says he's going to do something. Everybody else is going to follow him. And when Peter decides to give up, guess what? All of his friends decide to give up with him. And this is the problem with your struggle with failure. The, the, you know, there's people around you, and if you decide to give up and you decide to walk away, you, you affect other people. And some of you, because you're natural leaders, you affect more people like Peter, but all of us affect somebody when we decide to throw in the towel. A a book I read a while back, it's by Darren Patrick, and uh, he's a pastor, former pastor in St. Louis, Missouri, and the book is called The Dude's Guide to Manhood. (laughs) A very manly book. It's a great book, though. And uh, in one point in the story, he, he talks about his dad. And his dad was not an abusive man. His dad was not a mean person. His dad was one of those guys that was there, but he wasn't there. He was there, but he was an, ab- he was an absentee father. And as, uh, Darren struggled th- with this all the way growing up. And, and at one point, his dad, later in life, becomes a Christian. And he says, Dad, why weren't you there? Don't you know that this caused me such pain? And his dad said, you know, you know what happened? He said, Darren, when you were a little boy, like many pastors, you are a very bad kid. And he said, I didn't know what to do with you. And he said, I tried to discipline you, I tried to rein you in, and I failed and failed and failed. And he said, I remember it was one night at the dinner table, and your mom was, she was angry at me because of my failure. And he said, at that point, I said, I'm checking out. And he did. He checked out, and it, it, it affected his son. 
So here's Peter saying, look, I'm giving up. I failed. I can't do this. I'm going fishing. Everybody follows him. And then notice what else happens here as he's struggling with failure. It says that he says, I'm going. They all say, I'm going with you. And they went out. They got into a boat. But then notice the very last phrase here in verse 3. But that night they caught nothing. Now, have you been there? (laughs) Here you decide, I'm going back. I can't do this Christianity thing. I'm better off not following Jesus. But you're not better off, are you? You remember there was one point where uh, Jesus, said, Jesus said something offensive and everybody was going away and he looks at his disciples and he says, will you go away too? And what does Peter say? Jesus, where else can we go? You alone have the words to eternal life. It's almost like Peter saying, go away. There's no life apart from you. There's no life apart from following you. And so here Peter does go away. And what does he find? There's no fruit. There's no life. He goes out into that boat, and he catches nothing. And maybe that's you here this morning. You've been sitting in sin and complacency. You've gone back to your old life. And maybe you're finding, like Peter, that your old life is much less fruitful than you thought it would be. And maybe you're finding yourself empty. The net is empty. You're catching nothing. And so Peter here struggles with failure, and we're looking at it, but the question is, how does Peter get out of it? I mean, here he is, you know, and, and what if he stayed there, you know? What if Peter just stayed as a fisherman? He was a lousy fisherman, he caught nothing. But there'd be no first and second Peter. He wrote two books of the Bible. There'd be no leader in the early church. You know, what would happen if Peter just stayed here in this despondency and in this failure? Well, notice Peter doesn't stay there, Because Jesus comes to him and he restores Peter in his failure. This is the second point. The restoration of Peter's failure, starting in verse 4. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And so Jesus goes after Peter in his failure. And I love this about Jesus. You know, Jesus uh, doesn't wait for us to come back to him. Jesus loves lousy Christians and he goes after them. And he goes after, uh, you know, lost sheep, and he goes after the prodigal son, and Jesus goes after Peter the failure here. He goes down to the beach. And Jesus said to them in verse 5, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast a net on the other side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, now, now remember, this is John writing this, and he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. <laughs> you gotta love that. Um, self-identification. I'm the one Jesus loved. Um, anyway, I had to point that out. The disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, And he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. For they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. I'm going to keep on reading. For they got out on land, and they saw a charcoal fire in the place with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some fish that have been caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, uh, so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus had revealed himself 
to the, the disciples after he had been raised from the dead. And so Jesus here, he goes down, he restores Peter, and he does it by doing two things. He, he performs a miracle, he prepares him a meal, he prepares him breakfast. So he performs a miracle. He goes down, Peter is walking away from him, he's out trying to be a fisherman again. And notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't say, what are you doing, Peter? Haven't caught any fish, have you? I thought so. You failed. Now come back and be a disciple where you belong. He doesn't say that. What does he say? He blesses Peter even while he's out walking away in his failure. He, he performs a miracle for, for, for Peter as he's out there walking away in his failure. He blesses him. He blesses the failure. And this is one way that Jesus restores us in our failure is he blesses us. You know, the Bible says that the kindness of God leads us to repentance. And although there are lots of negative consequences to sin, God's blessing is not dependent upon your achievements. And so often, Jesus Christ will bless us even in the midst of our greatest failure. When I was younger, I, was, uh, I, I taught a junior high class. And as a younger man in my 20s, I would fail a lot, morally, spiritually, all kinds of ways. And I remember I used to think if I had a good week, you know, if I prayed a lot, if I read my Bible a lot, if I didn't fail in any major way, I'd have a great meeting on Friday night at the junior high Bible study. But then I remember there was one week where I had a horrible week. I failed at reading my Bible. I was lazy. I slept in. You know, I did a lot of other bad things. That was the best Friday night I ever had. And I began to learn that week that my God's blessing was not dependent upon my performance. That's the beginning. Jesus is beginning to teach Peter here. He says, look, I'm going to bless you even though you're out there and you're disobeying me. My blessing is not dependent upon your obedience. But then also notice he, they, they come to shore and when they get there, what has Jesus done? Jesus, the risen Jesus, had prepared them breakfast. Now this is really interesting, isn't it? Here, of all the things to do, Jesus eats a meal with his disciples. Why does he do that? Well, this is part also of the restoration process. Because what was Jesus known for in his life? What is the one thing that Jesus was known for more than anything else? Well, many would say it was Jesus' meals, his dinner parties. Because Jesus was always uh, preparing meals for tax collectors and prostitutes and notorious sinners. Jesus was known for his meals with sinners. This is one of the reasons why Jesus got himself in trouble. And Peter had seen Jesus do it a lot. And what was Jesus saying? He was saying, look, this is what I do. This is why I came. I came to eat with sinners. I came to show sinners that their relationship with me was not based upon their achievement or their failure. I came to accept and embrace and to eat with and have fellowship with sinners. This is what Jesus was known for. Now, I'm sure Peter, during his life, he knew this about Jesus, and he probably loved the fact that Jesus ate with failures. But I'm sure that Peter never thought of himself that way. It's great that Jesus does that for those failures. But here, post-resurrection, he walks up on the beach and Jesus has a meal. As if to say, hey, hey Peter, do you remember I used to eat with failures? Come to a meal. He was helping Peter understand that he himself was a notorious sinner. 
and that the meal that Jesus ate with all sorts of other sinners, he would also eat with Peter. You know, many of us, the reason why we struggle with failure so much is because we think that our relationship with God rests upon our achievement and falls apart when we fail. But, but here's what Christianity tells you. It says that paradoxically, all of us meet Jesus in our failure. Only when you admit that you have failed in all the most important ways do you finally come and meet with Jesus. Being a failure is a prerequisite to enter into a, entering into a relationship with God. And yet many of us are addicted to uh, works righteousness. It's hard for us to let, let go of the fact that we think we've got to be worthy and we've got to earn our relationship with God. By, by eating a meal with Peter, Jesus is saying categorically, your relationship with me does not depend on your performance. Now, John Calvin was an old, old theologian, and the way he said it was this. He said, your justification does not rest upon your sanctification. Sanctification is Christian growth. It's Christian obedience. And John Calvin said that God justifies you not because you're successful at obedience. In fact, Calvin said that God justifies you not on your obedience, but on Jesus' obedience. And what that means is that because Jesus was perfectly obedient and because Jesus lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died, your justification, your acceptance before God is constant, whether you've had a good week or a bad week. Your seat at the dinner table has been purchased by Jesus and it rests upon what he has done, not based upon what you have done. There's a great movie called um, Searching for Bobby Fischer. And it's about a Joshua Waitskin, who's this amazing chess player. And in the movie, uh, he, his dad, you know, is, is really proud of him. And he's, he's at every match, and he's rooting his son on. He's his son's coach. And at one point, the son realizes that when he does well, when he wins, his dad loves him. And his dad just has a glow about him. But when he loses his dad seems to be distant. And at one point in the movie, they're sitting out in the rain and he's, he's just lost abominably. And he looks at his dad and he says, Dad, do you love me? And his dad says, of course I love you. And, and the little boy says, well, why are you standing so far away from me? And he says, Daddy, do you love me? And he says, yes, I love you. And he says, well, Dad, why won't you look at me? It was in that moment he realized that the dad, their relationship was based on the boy's performance. And what the gospel says is that your relationship with God is not based upon your performance. It doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't rest upon whether you have achieved or failed. It rests upon the work of Jesus. Therefore, you're always welcome at the table. One of my good friends at night, he always looks at his children and he says, do you know that daddy loves you? And they say, yes, we know that daddy loves us. And he always asks the question, do you know why? Because that's a really important question. Why does daddy love you, and why does your father love you? Is it because you've kept the marriage together? Is it because you've got an awesome prayer life? Is it because you are a moral giant? No, God loves you because he loves you.
And he loves you based upon the perfect work of Jesus. And he says, I want to eat with you. And I want to embrace you and welcome you in. And it doesn't matter how you've lived this week. This is the gospel. This is grace. God's unmerited favor to the infinitely ill-deserving. And so he welcomes Peter back. And he says, Leader, he says Peter, I want to take the teeth out of your failure. I want to show you that my relationship with, with you is not based upon what you do. And it's okay. And so they eat the meal, and Peter is restored, and Peter is embraced, and Peter is brought in because of the gospel. But notice here, uh, he not only uh, restores Peter after his failure, the final point is that he actually transforms Peter's failure. Now, beginning in 15, there's this very interesting little scene, and I'll just, I won't read it, but I'll just tell it to you. Uh, uh, Jesus calls Peter away from the fire. And, he, and he, he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, I want to talk to you. And he says, I got a question. Do you love me, Peter? And Peter says, um, yes, you know that I love you. And he says, feed my sheep. And then he asks him a second time, do you love me, Peter? And he says, feed my sheep. And the third time, do you love me, Peter? And he says, Peter, feed my sheep. What is Jesus doing there? What Jesus is doing is he's giving Peter a job. He's giving Peter a future. He's giving Peter a task, a, 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 you know, a, a calling of service. And what is he saying? He's saying, Peter, I want you to feed my sheep. Now, the other night I was talking to my kids, and I was telling them this story, and I was saying, you know, uh, Jesus told Peter to feed my sheep, and my little son Luke said, why did he tell him to feed sheep? That's kind of weird. Was he a shepherd? You know? And uh, I said, no, 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 this, I was trying to explain metaphor to my kids, which is always, you know, you know, it's hard. And I said, well, uh, you know, when he said feed my sheep, he was talk, telling Peter to feed people's souls. And Luke said, boy, daddy, that's a big job. And I said, yeah, it is. And then the next morning, I, what I do is I always pray with my kids before I go to work. So I prayed with them, and right before I got into the car, Luke looked at me and said, daddy, you fed our souls. I said, yeah, that's what God wants Daddy to do. He wants Daddy to do that at church. Well, Jesus here is recommissioning Peter, and he's giving him a really big job. He's saying, Peter, I want you now to feed souls. And what I want you to see here is what he does when he gives him this job is he draws a parallel between this big job and his past failure. Notice where does he give him this commission? It's around a charcoal fire. Where did Peter deny the Lord? Around a charcoal fire. How many times does he give him the commission? Three times. How many times did Peter deny the Lord? Three times. Do you love me more than these? Remember what Peter said? If all deny you, if all of these deny you, I will never deny you. Jesus is drawing a parallel between Peter's commission and Peter's failure. Why is he doing that? He's saying that your service to Jesus, your effectiveness in following Jesus and serving others is not despite your failure, but because of your failure. You see, what the gospel does, it not only brings us in and says you're accepted even though you're a failure, but it says, now because of your failure, I'm gonna use you. In fact, I am gonna use your failure to be effective in the lives of other people. 
One of my favorite preachers was a man named Skip Ryan. And I went to be an intern at his church. The first day, he announced to the whole church that he was addicted to pain medication. And I admired this man's preaching. But after he stepped down, he went to a rehab center, and he, uh, he you know, learned how to cope with that addiction. And he put out a little video talking about how God restored him. Very honest, very vulnerable. Do you know that that video, that one video, was more impactful for me than all of his sermons? And God can transform your failures. God wants to use your failures. He will use them. He will transform them to make you useful, to enable you to feed his sheep. You know, when uh, Pastor Lucas gets up here and preaches, uh, I love it when he talks about when he struggled with drug addiction. He actually brought this up last week. And it's in those moments in, the, the, in his sermon that I begin to listen. Because you can see that you're looking at a man up there preaching who was addicted to drugs. And God can use our failures. God can transform our failures to enable us to be effective to other people. And the Apostle Paul in the book of uh, 1 Timothy, he said this. He said, I am the chief of sinners. But God gave his grace to me as a pattern. Because the same thing that God did in my life, God can do in your life. And notice at the very end of the story, uh, there's this little cryptic uh, little statement where it says that Peter, Jesus looked at Peter and he says, um, truly, truly, verse 18, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and go wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now, this, this is, he's essentially predicting Peter's death. And this seems like a bad news for Peter, right? But in some weird way, it's actually good news because he's saying, Peter, you who denied me, one day you will have the courage to die for me. And I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know what your failure is or how despondent you are, but there is a light at the end of the tunnel. The gospel transforms our failure. And Jesus Christ is able to work courage and loyalty and faithfulness in our lives. And when people looked at at Peter dying for his Savior, they didn't just say, look at this man of courage. They saw the story. They saw the whole story. They didn't just say, look how courageous he is. They said, look at the courage that came out of this man who once denied the Lord in front of a schoolgirl, a middle school girl. And Jesus Christ can do that for you. Because grace changes everything. And I don't know what it is that you look at your life and you hate it, and you're embarrassed of it. Listen, you can look at Jesus and you can allow him to embrace you and say, listen, I don't care if you failed. Your relationship is not based upon your obedience. And it doesn't matter how badly you've messed up, I can use it. And I could use anything to feed sheep. And God transforms our failures. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this passage and 
the story of Peter and what hope it brings us. I pray if there is anybody um, who's here this morning and, and maybe they've got the wrong impression of Christianity. Maybe they think Christianity is all about obeying rules of achieving a, a certain level of moral uh, uh, perfection. Lord, I pray that you would show us this morning that your grace is for failures. And God, the only requirement to come to you is to admit that we have messed up in all the most important ways. And Father, those of us who have failed in small ways and big ways, we pray that you would help us to be vulnerable. I pray that you would enable us, God, to share um, not only how we've messed up, but how you have wrought a certain amount of redemption in our lives, God. I pray that you would use us to show others, to give others the same grace that you've given to us. And we pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.